Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the name your price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, so whenever anyone in my generation of the family gets pregnant or, you know, gets someone pregnant, when the happy news is announced, after the cheers, the shouts, the congratulations, the baby name suggestions, one of my aunties or uncles will always say, watch out now, because twins running our family. I've always heard that always knew that. In fact, when the doctor did the ultrasound for my own children, I told her, be sure to take a good look around, you know, because twins run in our family. But recently, my cousin announces she's having a baby. When the folks start in with the twins thing, I think, you know, what twins? My dad's not a twin. My uncles are not twins. My aunties, my grandparents, where are these twins? And my family is like, I don't know. You just can't ask for simple answers to simple questions. Everything's got to be difficult. And I found the best way to uncover something is to act like you already know it. So at a recent gathering, after I see her drink her second glass of Moscato, I slide over next to my auntie. Auntie, I can't decide which one of us the twins would most resemble. Oh, I'd say they they really favor your Uncle Eddie. Then she scowls, angry, fuming, because I actually tricked some real information out. Won't say another word to me. But I get from my uncle, all them twins, yeah. Your grandmother, she never drove again, you know that? You know, after the accident. I nod. The accident. And it's like, with just a few words, my entire childhood shifts. I certainly knew we lived under a cloud, under a shadow. I could see it in my grandmother's eyes even when she laughed when she hugged me when she kissed me the darkness was always there right next to her power right next to her strength I just never knew what to call it and having something to call it recalling how she sometimes fought back in order to be present with me for me 
It makes me love her memory all the more. Stamp judgment. We're searching for answers of an entirely different sort. Snap proudly presents The Medicine Man. Now, my name is Lynn Washington, and I learn something incredible every single time I pour my auntie that extra glass of Moscato. But she gets very mad, very, very mad when I spill the beans on Snap Judgment. secrets are powerful secrets. And today's Snap, we're sharing a mystery from our friends at WHYY's The Pulse. Chris Lundy became very ill when he was just 10 years old, but the doctors, they couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. So Chris's family turned to other experts to get the job done. Afterward, no one would talk about it. Now Chris is in his 40s, and Chris wants to know what happened. And why what happened was hidden from him. Snap judgment. I was 10 years old. I was almost 11. I was living in Maryland with my mom and my older sister. The year was 1989. As Chris Lundy tells it, he was a healthy kid. Liked to play outside, read comic books. It was a normal day. And all of a sudden I felt this cough coming on. And it was intense. I remember feeling like I wasn't qualified for this level of pain. I mean, it came from the center of my chest. I remember covering my mouth, but removing my hand and looking down and seeing blood all over my hands. Afterward, he was sweating, curled up on the floor. The very next day, cough came, same pain. It started happening day after day. This was summer, and he was home a lot by himself. Chris liked video games. And most days, he would stay inside playing them while he anticipated the cough. After several more days, his mom took him to the doctor. The doctor checked him out, ran some tests, but couldn't say what was going on. My mother seemed calm, which made me, I guess, a little more worried than I would have been if I would have seen her fear. The cough kept coming, just as painful, just as scary. It continued for a couple weeks until Chris's mom came up with another plan. My mother sent me up to New York. That's where most of Chris's family's from. His mother and her sisters were all born in Haiti, and everyone but Chris's mom had established their lives in Brooklyn. Chris didn't know why he was going there now, but it seemed like there was something they weren't telling him. Everybody was really, really nice to me overwhelmingly and suspiciously nice. You know, when my aunts hugged me, the hugs were longer than usual. When they talked to me, they talked more gently (laughs) than usual. So the next day, my mother shows up. I remember being really happy to see her, you know. They headed out together, the whole family. The thing that floored me was 
all the aunts were there. This was so unusual. Outside of Christmas or Thanksgiving, they arrived at a house Chris didn't recognize. We were greeted by this man, and he brought us downstairs to the basement. And it was interesting because, uh, one, it was, it was dark. It was all candles. There was a tub with flower petals. There was a statue of the Mother Mary. Chris's mom and aunt sat in chairs lined up along the wall. Chris and the man sat in chairs across from each other in the center of the room. The man told Chris he had special healing abilities that could help Chris. He said, what question do you have for me? And I asked him, how'd you get your powers? You know, and again, I was I was big into comic books and things like that. So my little 10-year-old mind, it framed it, you know, almost like, what's your hero origin story? The man told Chris about a dream he had where an angel visited him. Then he pulled out an amber glass bottle with a dropper in it. He explained that whenever I feel the cough coming on to put one drop of the liquid inside on my tongue. When I left, I I was skeptical. This was just another thing that we were going to do with no answers. So that night, Chris heads back to Maryland with his mom, amber bottle in hand. Next day, she goes back to work. He goes back to video games until he feels the cough coming on. I found the vial and I put a drop on my tongue. And the coughing sensation goes away. Fuck, I gotta stop for a second because I know how this sounds, man. Justin, I'm telling you, it went away, man. It went away. (laughs) And when you think that, like, are you like, it's some psychological thing or you're like, no, physically it went. It went away. Like physically. Physically. The liquid in the vial worked the next day and the next. The cough-free days started to stack up And Chris started to believe there was something powerful to what the man had given him. So one night, the coughing sensation came again, as usual, put a drop on my tongue. And the coughing sensation kept coming. Okay, uh, let me do another drop. And then the cough hit. This pain was completely off the charts. It was the most pain I've ever been in, even till this day. I was crying. I was balled up. But I think on top of the physical toll that it took, I remember being enraged because I felt betrayed by the guy. I felt stupid for even believing that to begin with. So this is where the struggle really started for Chris, between believing and doubting the remedy the man had given him. The next day came and I spent the entire day anticipating the cough. Is it gonna be as bad as last night? Is it gonna be even worse? And as it got later and later, the cough didn't come. I remember going to sleep that night, it was just a free day. So the day after, I woke up worried, but again, it didn't come. And so those days of no cough became a week of no cough, became a month. I started to relax a little bit, and I realized that it was over. As Chris got older, he wondered what was in that amber vial, and if the man had actually cured him. 
So over the years, it became clear to me who that guy was, who they sent me to, that he was a voodoo doctor. You know, he was a voodoo priest. I'm Haitian. My family's Haitian. Part of Haitian culture is voodoo and voodoo practices. Chris found it odd his family never talked about it, like his trip to New York never happened. He also wondered what had been wrong with him. His condition was really serious. So what made it go away? Chris actually works in the medical field, selling medications that coincidentally treat lung diseases. But here I am with this experience from childhood that stands in the face of all that. There's this conflict of intellect and life experience. A lot of the questions that I have could have been answered in 10 minutes if my mother was around. But she passed away when I was 17. Flash forward a few decades later, I had a ton of curiosity around what happened and uh, what my mother's life was like and what my mother's relationship with her family was like. And his sister wasn't around much and can't fill in the holes. Of the aunts that were there, two have died. The other two, Aunt Mile and Aunt Renette, he hadn't spoken to in decades. There'd been a bitter fracture in the family a while back, and Chris and Mile had ended up on different sides of it. Beyond that, there's always been an intense discomfort discussing voodoo with the older generation and his family. Chris thinks it's a taboo topic. It would be more than hard to ask them. It would be, you know, virtually impossible. There aren't any medical records. So Chris had to turn to other resources to answer his questions. My search began with Auntie Leslie. She was my mom's best friend. I know she misses my mother every single day. And I know that talking to me sparks memories of my mom. But I also know that she loves hearing from me. Even though she wasn't there, I expected her to be able to tell me my mother's state of mind. Because they used to talk every day. She came to see me. And I remember her saying that you were sick, that you were really, really sick. Do you remember them taking me to that guy? What guy? She doesn't know where Chris was taken. She said his aunt Mile would be the best resource, the one Chris hasn't spoken to in years. But Leslie also said Chris could try his aunt Mildred, who, in general, knows a lot of the family business. Hello! <laughs> He catches up with her, and he gets to his reason for calling. Says he's been thinking about that time he was really sick as a kid and got sent to New York. Do you remember any of that? No. Oof. She has no memory of the whole episode. Still, Chris tells her. We ended up going to see um, a voodoo doctor. You too? She explains it wasn't uncommon in the family to visit a voodoo practitioner when they didn't know why someone was sick. She'd been taken too. What it told me is that voodoo is a part of not only Haitian culture, but my family's culture. The older aunts that, you know, were pretty much adults when they moved from Haiti to America. They were living in this Haitian bubble inside of Brooklyn. So they're going to be more connected to voodoo practices. Mildred echoed that only Mile would know the answers to Chris's questions, but he still wasn't ready to go there. Instead, he decided to seek, let's call it a more traditional medical explanation of what might have been going wrong with him. He called up Chris Becker, a pulmonary and critical care doctor at Mount Sinai in New York. 
Dr. Becker jumped into asking about Chris's symptoms surrounding the cough. Would this be a daily occurrence or? Yes, it was, it was daily. Were you able to identify any triggers? It, it was random. And what was the color of it? They go on for a couple minutes until Dr. Becker feels he's gotten enough to offer some ideas, which we should emphasize were not to be taken as a diagnosis or medical advice. Hemoptysis or coughing up blood is uh, very distressing. We usually take this situation very seriously. Based on Chris's description, Dr. Becker says he was coughing up a moderate amount of blood, and it was pretty clearly coming from his lungs. What you're describing is that you have these, this warning, which is probably when the bleeding starts, and then there's a few seconds before that causes you to cough as the lungs realize that there's blood all of a sudden. Chris's explanation knocks a number of chronic illnesses off the list of possibilities, like bronchitis or fungal infections or tuberculosis. This leaves mostly anatomical issues, blood vessels in the wrong place. These arterial venous malformations mean that an artery connects to a vein without the normal pathway, increasing the possibility of spontaneous bleeding in the lungs. Dr. Becker says that if Chris had been his patient, he would have done imaging to look for these abnormalities, see exactly where the bleeding was coming from. That triggered a question I had. And a spontaneous resolution would be possible with some of those conditions? Well, that's actually, in general, that's, that's a bit puzzling, is that this just spontaneously stopped and never recurred. I can't really fully reconcile this because it wouldn't be the most common scenario. This is the part that puzzles Chris, too. How do you get better? Dr. Becker supports patients seeking out different approaches to their medical conditions, including through religion. But for a scenario of significant hemoptysis, in our scientific view, they will not be enough. Is it possible Chris is forgetting some details? Does he just remember it as worse than it was? Either way. You know, you were lucky that those episodes always spontaneously stopped for you, right? But what if one of them had Listening to Dr. Becker helps me understand that my mother was scared. She was afraid. Small side street here. Uh, so what did his mom think a voodoo priest could do for her son? That's it right there? Okay. We can't find the man who treated Chris all those years ago. But in January of 2023, we head to Queens to see an ordained voodoo priestess named Mambo Florence Jean-Joseph. Go up here and knock and... <laughs> Mambo Florence is there, and on the walls there was you know, a lot of Haitian art. They sat down at her dining table, started talking. Mambo Flo explained that many different people from the Haitian-American community come to her. Teachers, various professionals, even doctors. Her services have recognized importance to Haitian families. What she provides, in addition to religious ceremonies, is like a counseling service. And she gives her advice according to what she sees as basic voodoo principles. Voodoo is like philosophy. Love yourself, accept yourself the way you are, being in harmony with nature, being in harmony with human, and respect life. She explains her advice is not in contradiction to medical advice, but more like a supplement. In fact, she encourages people to get checked out by a doctor before they come. 
After their talk, Mambo Flo takes Chris down to the basement where she conducts voodoo rituals. And one thing that really took me was how familiar it felt. It was very similar to the room that I was in back when I was 10 years old. He recognized the candles, the altar, even the way the chairs were arranged. Mambo Flo is welcoming and open about her practice, though she acknowledges a stigma voodoo sometimes carries, even within Haitian communities. It's like voodoo, it's for the uneducated and all that. Even if we have scholars who are voodoo initiates, but when they write, they never refer to it like I practice it. It gave Chris an idea why his aunt doesn't talk about it, and even why he feels reluctant to discuss the whole episode. Driving back from Mambo Flows, Chris returns to the questions that have brought him here. What did I have? How did I get better? And what happened when I was there? When I was at that house, when I was in that basement, what went down? And one thing becomes clear to him. I have to get my questions answered and my aunt's the only one who truly can. His aunt Mile, he means, the one he's been avoiding. So even though I think it'll be a challenge, I gotta make it happen. Turns. Chris decides there's only one way to get the answers he's been searching for. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Medicine Man episode. When last we left, Chris realized that there's just one person who knows what ailed him as a child and knows how he got better. But talking to her, that's another thing entirely. Snap judgment. To get ready, Chris called up a person he thought could counsel him on what he might say to his aunt. Someone who knows a lot about how voodoo fits into Haitian culture and who actually counsels kids about reconnecting to that culture through her organization, the Empowerment Network. I am Dr. Charlene Desir. I'm a professor at Nova Southeastern University. I'm initiated voodoo priestess. Dr. Desir said she could discuss Chris's childhood experience with him. But you have to understand a little context about voodoo. So voodoo was created by kidnapped Africans. During the Middle Passage, enslaved people from all over Africa were taken to the island of Hispaniola, which present-day Haiti shares with the Dominican Republic. The Pan-Africans that were brought to Haiti from various tribes, various classes, various education levels created a system that made sense to them for survival. And that system was called voodoo. Voodoo is more than a religion. It's a system, a way of life and understanding. Academically, we call it an epistemology, a way of knowing. And one of the fundamental aspects of that was health. So people from all over Africa brought these traditions and this knowledge about how to heal the body using the natural resources they had. And this is our inheritance as Haitian people. 
Chris asked why all the aunts had to accompany him to the Ungan, the voodoo priest. Having the sisters be there in alliance, it shows the love that surrounded you. I don't know, Chris, but I'm sure your family sought out medical care. <laughs> they sought off medical care first. That's where you're going to go first. If it doesn't work, then we have to go to the other doctors. I know what the, the majority of people think and believe about, about voodoo. And, and it's like, how, how do I explain that I had this incredible illness and that I went to a Ugan and then I no longer had that, that incredible illness. Well, brother, you're telling the whole world right now. <laughs> so you ready. You've arrived. I mean, it, it's very simple. I went to a root doctor. I went to an herbalist. We've been denied our humanity for so many years. This is how we survived slavery. Chris asks why voodoo has this stigma associated with it. We've been miseducated miseducated as a community. My thing is that we have a problem of respecting things we don't understand. Dr. Desir says that Haitians have been made to feel insecure about voodoo because of hiding it for so long for their own protection. But given all that secrecy, what should Chris say to his Aunt Mile to get her to open up about his family experience? What is it you want to know? You know that you were healed. You know that at some juncture, despite what's happening now, that there was a relationship that you had with the women in your bloodline. And you are a Haitian American man, point blank simple. You are an African American man. You are a Pan-African American man. But your indigenous roots are voodoo. You're Haitian, spiritually and culturally. I think you just gave me everything I needed. They hung up, and something had shifted in Chris. Something that Dr. Desir gave me that I walked away with was this pride, right? Like being proud of the Haitian culture and where voodoo fits and where it came from. He felt ready to talk to his aunt. It's February 1st, 11.30 a.m. I'm sitting in my car. He's outside his aunt Mile's house. His cousin Gabby came with him for support. There's a lot of anxiety, a lot of reluctance. I'm looking forward to it, and I'm not looking forward to it all at the same time. Yeah, I don't know what to expect. All right. Haven't been here in, I don't know, maybe 15 years. <sighs> well, you, oh. Cold as day Oh, here. man. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, this is, this I'm is bad. Like, they sit down together in the house Chris remembers from his childhood, the stairs where he played with his cousins, the table where he ate cereal before going to bed, and the talk's going well. They're sharing good memories, laughing. And then Chris gets to why he contacted Mile now. You know, there was a, there was a time... I was going to ask you that I got sick. I was coughing and coughing up yes. blood and stuff. Blood, yes. Okay, because my mother sent me to New York. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember that. I went to the doctor. They said that there's something on your chest, your pulmonary thing. Uh -huh. They did a test and everything. And after I went to get a second opinion, what the first doctor had said, it was wrong. Hmm. 
She knows exactly what he's talking about. She confirms how sick he was, how scared they were he was going to die. That's when Chris brings up the other part. I remember we went to the voodoo doctor. You did? We went with you. I don't remember. You don't remember that? Mm-mm. She says she doesn't recall it. You were there, my mother, Auntie Maya, Auntie Esther, oh. Auntie Annette, oh. all in the room. I don't remember. Again, she says she doesn't remember. I never heard anything after that. You got better. Maybe the voodoo doctor worked. <laughs> <laughs> we just gotta, gotta <laughs> peel back that layer yeah. and say, Wait, auntie, auntie, it's the voodoo doctor. She remembered the illness clearly. She remembers me coughing up blood. She remembers me coming to New York. She just held to being completely unfamiliar with any voodoo element at all. <laughs> that's it. You go home, that's it. You go home, that's it. There's something happening. That's that. They moved on, talked about other things. I felt cheated. I had talked to everyone else. Chris never got the background he wanted. He figured it was for the reasons Dr. Desir said, the cultural discomfort. Even if he'd gotten past it, it seemed his aunt never would. So where I was at this point was, you know, there were some things that were confirmed. For example, you know, I was sick. You know, it was really, really bad. But there was still a mystery in terms of how I got better. I initially set out to get answers to some factual questions. I didn't get answers to all of that. But what I did get was answers to things that are far more important. I learned about my mother. I think that the longer my mother was in America, I think that she was becoming more and more Americanized, bringing me to the voodoo doctor. In that moment, my mother was Haitian, you know, full-on Haitian. I think that my mother would have went down almost any road to try to get me better. You know, my mother passed away. She was 39 years old, and I was 17 years old. So when she passed, I still saw her as ma. But through this journey, I think I have a clearer picture of who she was as a woman and who she was as a parent, as a protector. And I love her for it, and I know that she loved me. And as far as how Chris got better? I am more comfortable sitting with the mystery of it. I'm never going to know why I got better. A voodoo priest would say I got better because of the potion that I took. Western medicine doctor would say I'm missing some facts or lucky break. I think what matters is what always mattered, and that is uh, I got better. WHYY's The Pulse, who originally aired this story. The podcast features stories about people and places at the heart of health and science. Chris Lundy is a storyteller who's performed at First Person Arts, Risk, USA Today's Storytellers Project, and lots more. The story is produced and reported by Chris Lundy and Justin Cremont. It was edited by Mike and Scott and Lindsay Lazarski with sound design 
like Mike and Scott. Engineering, like Charlie Kyer. Special thanks to Du Nalio Cherie for his help on the story. Judgment, the Medicine Man episode. My name is Glenn Washington. Today, real stories from real people wondering if the doctor is in. Now, you've asked, we have answered. Our next storyteller snap is a longtime friend of the show, Ray Christian. And aside from being a storytelling legend, Ray's an army man. Snap Judgment. In 1984, I was a 22-year-old young sergeant assigned to an airborne infantry battalion. We were paratroopers. I was stationed at Fort Bragg. We'd conduct night combat equipment jumps that would involve thousands of paratroopers at once. The training was dangerous, and it wasn't unusual for us to have guys severely injured or even killed during these training operations. We had young soldiers in the company that were Grenada vets, and our senior NCOs, a lot of them were Vietnam vets. Our young soldiers who were just chomping at the bit to get a chance at combat. Guys start doing drugs, guys start drinking, guys have problems with their wives, their girlfriends. Morale in the company was starting to drop. And this added up to so much stress, we had a few guys go AWOL. Me and Sergeant Ronnie were assigned to inventory the soldiers' locker and equipment who had went AWOL. It was uniforms, civilian clothing, radio cloth. And in the corner, there's this little folded bindle of aluminum foil. Unfolded, and I saw inside were two small stamps with stars on them. Whoa, acid? Nah. So I took one of the stamps out, and I said, hey, Ronnie, put one of these in your mouth. He looked at me, and he said, what is this, acid? I I figured it was acid, but I wasn't going to really take one. I was just fooling around with him, you know, put it in your mouth, just kidding with him. He looked at it for a second and said, why not, and put it in his mouth, and I laughed. Now, Sergeant Ronnie was the kind of guy that was very hyper-military. He was kind of strict. He had a high-pitched voice, pretty by-the-book kind of guy. He looked at me and said, so what are you going to do? He must know something I don't know. He He wouldn't take acid. I just knew when he put it in his mouth, it had to be fake. Then he looked at me and said, what are you going to do? I said, hey, okay, same as you. I put one in my mouth. We take the inventory sheet, we turn it in to supply, 
we started heading out. And as we were walking across the parking lot, the battalion sergeant major yelled out, Hey, you two guys, what are you doing? Where are you going? Oh, my God, sergeant major. We said, we're heading out, sergeant major, heading home. He said, oh, no, you're not. Get your gear. You're going on the jump. Because we had the additional duty of inventorying this guy's equipment, we believed that we weren't going to be involved in the jump. But, but Sergeant Major, I think, he, uh-uh, he cut me off. We need to get these shoots filled. Let's go. Let's move out. <sighs> so I'm starting to think about all the things that go wrong. What if I get decapitated by a suspension line? What if I get towed behind the aircraft? What if I hit some equipment on the ground? I was starting to immediately feel fear and apprehension. If we would have said something like even slightly hesitant about, about being on a jump, it would have seemed suspicious. We call people who are not on jump status legs, and that's a dirty word. I would rather have died than turned down being on a jump. I wasn't going to be a leg. I was going to jump. I looked at Ron and I said, man, how you feel? He said, man, I don't feel nothing, but this is bad anyway. When we were on the trucks headed to the, the pack shed, this is at the Air Force Base, I started having this feeling right then and there that everybody on the truck was staring at me. And I knew, oh, it's, it's starting to kick in now. We all pour inside the rigger shed, all 500 of us. And one at a time, we're issued parachutes as we enter inside. Once you've got your parachute on and you got all your equipment hooked up, you stand in line for the jump master's inspection. Open your ripcord protected flap, hold, squat hold, recover, turn, bend, arch your back, tick, tap, 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 tick, tap, tap, turn, turn, squat hold. I actually started saying that out loud, you know, squat hold, squat hold. I was just saying it because I thought I, I should. And then I started thinking, wait a minute, if I do that, people will think I'm high. But if I act like I'm not high, they'll think I'm high. Slowly, all the guys in line started getting their parachutes inspected, and we take a seat. I wanted to sit down, but I kept standing up. I kept walking around, and that was unusual. I started to think about how many thousands of paratroopers have been in this building preparing for a jump, and I was inspired to just yell out for everyone to hear, how many paratroopers have been in this place? I started thinking about there were ghosts, maybe, still impregnated in the memories of the building and in the walls. And I yelled that question out, too. Are there any ghosts in the walls? When I was startled by two, well, what looked to be two World War II-era paratroopers coming out of the walls, I couldn't help but walk closer to it, but on closer inspection, it was just a pattern of old paint scuffs on the wall. That's when I started to notice that other people were starting to stare at me, staring at them, and a few even laughed at me. And that's where I saw Ronnie. He was already rigged, sitting on the floor, crying, tears coming down his cheeks. To me, it was like a river of water. 
I asked Ronnie how he was doing. Ronnie looked at me, and he just started to cry. And people noticed. I went to him, and I said in a soft, loud voice, Man, get yourself together. You are an American paratrooper. Do you know what our brothers have done before you? Act like a damn man. Get Get it together. together. And I started singing. And I'm not a singer. And I'm singing these corny airborne songs that they, they force on us. Gory, gory, what a hell of a way to die. Gory, gory, what a hell of a way to die. Gory, gory, what a hell of a way to die. And he ain't gonna jump no more. And uh, I remember somebody yelling out, oh, that's pretty damn appropriate, Sergeant Christian. It's really appropriate. Ronnie stared. I reached out and I wiped his eye. A little tear was coming from it and I helped him up. And then he assisted me in rigging my chute. Once everybody's inspected, we stand up and we all march out toward the back of the airplane. The only thing you can see inside a C-130 at night like that is this, the red jump light above the uh, jump door and down on the floor, and there's this hum of the plane. Usually the guy asleep, but I didn't. I was just focused on the light. I mean, it was beautiful. And the Air Force pilot turns on the green light, go. Door opened up and the wind rushed in. Normally you really feel the impact of the prop blast hitting you and you twist into the night sky, but I don't know, I had the sensation that I just jumped into a big old marshmallow cloud and I just floated out. Stars were starting to twinkle. The moon smiled at me. The parachutes billowing across the drop zone. They looked like ghosts. They were just floating and dancing. And and, uh, I could hear everything, every sound. Threw my arms out, looked up like Jesus. Started contemplating the nature of the universe. Oh, it was just beautiful. It's probably the best jump I ever had. I loved it. I loved it. Seemed like it took me forever to reach the ground. I landed in a sandy pile amongst the pine trees and thickets. The guy landed close to me and he hit the ground like a sack of potatoes and he gave out an oh. And I just yelled out across the whole drop zone, this is beautiful. And it just echoed. I know everybody heard that, but I couldn't help myself. It was beautiful like those other parachutes that were billowing across the drop zone. It looked like a woman in a dress. Through the darkness, I heard this sound, and I I recognized it as the sound of vomiting. And instead of going to the assembly area, I followed that sound, and that led me to Sergeant Ronnie. And there he was, sitting on the ground, vomiting. And he was crying, softly. And I was thinking to myself, he must be having a bad trip. And that's when I decided I wanted to sing to him. 
We're all Americans and proud to be guardians of honor and liberty. Some flying gliders to the enemy. Some come down as paratroopers. The next morning when I woke up, the company commander, who I always try to avoid because of his manner, when he saw me, he said to me, you know you need to go see the battalion commander. He wants to talk to you about your behavior pre-jump and on the drop zone. So the battalion commander doesn't speak to me. People in my rank don't usually get a chance to talk to him. And I go into the battalion commander's office. All the senior officers in the battalion were present. That kind of a group usually means something bad. You're getting some kind of a ugly reprimand. And I was scared as hell. Then he said, Never have I seen such an unselfish act as a man motivating his fellow paratroopers, sticking with a scared, nervous man during every phase of the operation, even on the drop zone. Sergeant Christian, you are the personification of an American paratrooper. Keep up the good work. Airborne. I said, thank you, sir. Airborne. I can remember shaking my head as I was walking away from his office going, damn, I, I was completely dumbfounded. I, I, what just happened? It was like the blade didn't cut my head, but it fell. In the mornings when all the units are doing physical training and they run up and down Arden Street, there are the loudspeakers where they play nothing but nonstop military martial music. And these old airborne songs are the ones that you hear. And when they would come across the speakers, we would all start singing them really loud to Sergeant Ronnie. And you know, much to his chagrin. Sergeant Ronnie, you were scared on the drop zone, man. Sergeant Ronnie, what's up? You lost your nerve. You was having problems, Sergeant Ronnie? And <laughs> he'd be running with his butt cheeks really tight. He was too stiff and too anal to respond. Up to that point, everything, all of our encounters were always serious. We really didn't have anything to joke about. There was nothing funny. I had my boys back again. They were back in their spirit. Big thanks to Ray Christian who is a storyteller living in Boone, North Carolina. Now do yourself a favor. Subscribe to his podcast, What's Ray Say? It'll be available on our website or wherever you get your podcast, snapjudgment.org. Do that. The original score and sound design was by Leon Morimoto. That story was produced by Adiza Egan.
now. When you're looking for a gift to give that special someone, do you know it's better than socks? Better than a tie? Better than a bottle of cheap perfume? I'll tell you what they really want. The story. And you can give the gift of story by sending your friends and your enemies a little taste of the Snap Judgment Podcast. They will be forever grateful, I promise. What, did I, did I mention that Snap's evil twin podcast spoof is available everywhere? That's two for one, players. Snap Judgment is brought to you by the team that will always drink the entire contents of any vial you offer them. Except for the producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. We'll take two. That's Nancy Lopez, Pat Vecini Miller, Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, John Facile, Shana Sheely, Taylor DeCott, Flo Riley, Marissa Dodge, Bo Walsh, David Exame, Regina Beriaco. And of course, you may have heard this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, after pouring her an extra glass of wine, you could coax your auntie into revealing that yes, yes, it is true. That she did cut you out of her last will and testament. And that's exactly what you get for asking all those crazy questions, Mr. Snap Judgment Radio Man. You happy now? Huh? Huh? Do that. And you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PR. <laughs>